Hi, and welcome to the Virtue Podcast. This is Leah Case, and we are in week four of our series in Genesis, and the title of this lesson about Noah is Sealed and Safe. This study in Genesis covers the creation story and all the history leading up to Abraham. We've covered a lot of ground, haven't we? But the point of this particular series, actually the goal of the Bible from Genesis all the way through to Revelation, is to show us the character of God and His story of redemption. I remember in my early 20s trying to reconcile two things that I knew and truly believed, but couldn't really explain to myself or anyone else for that matter how they fit together. One is that God is sovereign and perfect in all His ways and never makes a mistake. And the other is that Jesus came to reverse the curse of sin and death that we inherited from Adam and Eve, and He did this by taking the wrath we deserved and dying in our place so we could be forgiven and made righteous in Him. Salvation 101, right? Well, I knew that was true, but couldn't make sense of how it all started with creation and the perfect existence God had fashioned for Adam and Eve to enjoy. After all, that's where Genesis begins. God speaks out of nothing, and He creates everything. Like poetry in motion, the world comes together with this incredible precision and pattern, and God expresses delight in every detail. Life is beautiful, just as God intended, and then the serpent shows up, and sin enters the world, and it appears that God's wonderful plan has been spoiled. But how could that be? He is sovereign God. Well, I never thought it out loud, but somehow I pictured God the Father at this point, telling the pre-incarnate Christ, you need to go down there and fix it. I don't know, maybe that just came from my limited understanding of Jesus' prayer in John 17, when he said, I accomplished the work you gave me to do. But God's perfect plan wasn't spoiled, and sending his Son into our broken world was not plan B. Even before creation, there was a plan of redemption. The redeeming work of Jesus has always been the very heart of God's wonderful plan since before time began. 2 Timothy 1.9 explains it this way, He did this not because we deserved it, but because it was His plan from the beginning of time to show us His grace through Christ Jesus. So when God created the world, He was really setting the stage for the glorious telling of His grace, and Jesus has the leading role. Well, there aren't enough head-exploding emojis to illustrate how I felt when that light went on for me. Eden was a place of earthly perfection, until it wasn't, and God's perfect plan of grace was just beginning to unfold. So at the end of our lesson in week three, Noah comes on the scene, and by this time the world has gotten so corrupt that God tells Noah he's going to flood the earth, destroy every living thing that breathes, including the people. Noah and the Flood is one of the best-known Bible stories, especially that cheery version with the ark full of animals, which is totally appropriate for small children. But sadly, the true episode is actually terrifying to think about, and history treats it like a myth. Even in the Church, we tend to think of the Flood as that preachy episode in Scripture where our Creator got so fed up with the world that He destroyed everything. But read it again. This story is about so much more than sin and judgment, as real as that is. It also tells us about God's heart of redemption and grace in a world gone terribly wrong. God wasn't throwing in the towel. This is the episode in history where our Creator refused to give up. And we see the significance of this story and how so many natural earthly details of the flood 
are actually signs of spiritual realities that reveal God's grace and point to the gospel. We'll look at one of those in a few minutes. But first, let's consider some lessons we can learn from Noah's example. Well, there's the obvious contrast between what God sees when he looks at the wicked culture surrounding Noah, everything they think and do is consistently evil, and what he sees when he looks at Noah. He says, I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. And by the way, it helps just to define those terms. We often think that righteous means perfect and sinless, but the Bible defines it as simply being aligned with God's standards and His plan for humanity. We think of wicked as being a horrible villain, but the Bible defines it as anyone who lives as though God doesn't exist. So what can we learn from Noah's example? Well, first, we can see a legacy of faith. Long before Noah set out to build the ark, he was building a character that was pleasing to God. From the time he was born, Noah knew that his father Lamech had big dreams for him. Parents often gave their sons a name that reflected their hopes or the circumstances at the time they were born, and Lamech named his son Noah, which means comfort and rest, hoping that he would be the offspring that God had promised. Can you imagine? Now, to us, that seems like putting too much pressure on a child. But Noah's father was passing a godly legacy on to his son. Lamech's grandfather was the prophet Enoch, so Noah grew up hearing how his great-grandpa Enoch walked with God, and instead of dying, God took him directly to heaven. We all know how family stories have a way of getting stretched over time, and it doesn't take long for details to get blurred into legend. Can you imagine Noah hearing this as a young boy and saying, Dad, did it really happen that way? And Lamech could have said, well, if you don't believe me, go ask your grandpa, because Methuselah was Noah's grandfather, and he lived so long he was a walking history book. Genesis 5.24 tells us that Enoch was a man who walked with God. He modeled a way of life for his son Methuselah and his grandson Lamech, who passed that legacy of belief and hope onto his own son, Noah. Now, we might think, wow, (laughs) Noah had quite a family tree. No wonder he walked with God. But there are examples in the Bible to remind us that you can inherit a godly legacy, but saving faith has to be your own. That's why Genesis 8 says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't inherit it or earn it, and there was nothing about his family heritage that made Noah more deserving of grace than anyone else. He was a natural-born sinner like the rest of us but he believed God and chose to walk in his ways. Can you think of someone who prayed for you and modeled for you what faith looks like? Well, my mom, who is 95 years young right now, immediately comes to mind. She showed us how to love Jesus and listen to God's word. She taught us to do our chores cheerfully and pray always and laugh often. We learned to love music and live simply, and there was always a reason to rejoice. She never met a stranger and has the most natural way of bringing Jesus into the conversation without forcing it. She is slowing down on the outside, but in her mind and spirit, she's raring to go, and I'm so grateful that she's still teaching me what faith looks like. Listen, you don't have to come from a long family line of believers or be thoroughly versed in all the Bible has to say. Most of that comes with time and consistently walking out our faith. And a good place to start is simply following Noah's example. Genesis 7-5 says Noah did all that the Lord commanded him.
And of course, it's not just family that we influence. We model what faith looks like all the time for people in our path, and God promises to bless that. So we're never too old, and it's never too late to start building a legacy of faith. And then, by example, we see that Noah had a heart for the lost. Hebrews 11 says, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in godly fear built an ark to save his family. And by faith he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. What does it mean that he condemned the world? Well, that's just a dramatic way of saying that there was an unmistakable difference between the way Noah lived in contrast to the people around him. He was a bright light in a dark place. Noah didn't hide what he believed or avoid telling others why he was building an ark. Well, for sure he was mocked, but after the novelty wore off, who knows? Maybe he was more ignored than anything else. The neighbors may have been polite to him, but warned their kids and friends to steer clear of Noah the nutcase. Even his relatives were indifferent to his preaching. Now, his immediate family went into the ark with him, but Noah had brothers and sisters. He had nieces and nephews. Noah had neighbors, and it's possible there may even have been workers he hired on occasion while he built the ark. It would have been just a paycheck to them. But Noah had a heart for the lost. These weren't just names and faces to Noah. They were people he knew and cared about. And if someone you know and love has so far ignored that they need forgiveness and salvation— or they always have a string of excuses why they don't believe Jesus, what can we do? Well, we know what we can't do. We can't give up, even if they won't listen. We need to keep praying, knowing that God doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. That's 2 Peter 3.9. And James 15 promises us that the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power. A very wise woman I know named Jill Briscoe said that people may resist our advice, they may spurn our appeals and reject our suggestions and refuse our help, but they're powerless against our prayers. When we anchor our prayers in the scriptures and pray the word of God over those we love, there is such confidence and power in that. 1 John 5, 14 and 15 promises if we pray anything according to His will, we know that He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we already possess what we have asked of Him. Well, we all have someone to pray for, don't we? Who will you begin or continue to consistently pray for, specifically by name? May I make a suggestion? Think of seven people, one for each day, and a very specific verse that you will pray every day for them. Be consistent, be faithful, and see how God will answer. Well, another example we see that Noah learned to wait. Genesis 8.1 says, But God remembered Noah. Now, this might be the part of the story that resonates most with us because, well, waiting isn't easy, especially when we feel stuck and can't see what the Lord is doing. Have you ever wished God would just fill you in on all the details of what He's doing? I don't know who needs to hear this. Well, actually, we all do. But waiting is God's specialty. He's long-suffering and patient and kind. He's merciful, and He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He doesn't get tired and lose interest. He never abandons His plan or rushes us along like we're some project He's in a hurry to finish. But it's only when we are in a prolonged place of waiting 
that we really begin to see how much waiting He does for us. Waiting for us to get all that energy out, that spinning in circles, trying to do it my way until we drop, exhausted, so He can rest us. Let me say that again. So He can rest us and quiet us enough to listen. Isn't it interesting that at first God was very clear and gave Noah specific directions and details about the timing? He told Noah to start loading the animals because in seven days I'm going to send rain. God told Noah in advance that it would rain for 40 days and 40 nights. I wonder if Noah was keeping track, like marking an X on the calendar, or if he could even tell the difference in the storm between day and night. In the book of Acts, Paul went through a storm so violent they couldn't see the sun or the stars for many days. And besides, when you're in crisis mode, time is a blur. But Noah was hanging on for dear life to God's word to him. Forty days, forty nights. This won't last forever. When that ear-splitting thunder and incessant downpour finally did stop, Noah and his family felt overwhelming relief. But then the waiting took on a different purpose. We read the story and think, well, yeah, the floodwaters covered everything and the highest mountain peak was submerged nearly 20 feet underwater. Of course it was going to take time. But for Noah, it seemed like God went silent. I wonder why God didn't give Noah exact details like he had before the storm, just so Noah would be able to understand what was happening outside the ark and how long it was going to take for the waters to recede. Well, we can't be certain, but it's safe to speculate that God's silence and that long stretch of waiting after the storm, it was to give Noah and his family time to process what was happening inside the ark, and more to the point, inside their own hearts. Sometimes that's what he does with us in the waiting. Noah waited patiently, but really, what choice did he have? There's a question in our workbook on page 128 that I thought long and hard about and kept going back to. What does Noah's long stay on the ark reveal about God's character in our waiting? Well, when the Bible says that God remembered Noah, it means that he never took his eyes off Noah and his family, but he took divine action when the time was right. Now think about that. What divine action? Well, it says he made a wind to blow over the earth. And that same Hebrew word, ruha, in Genesis means wind and spirit. We see it in Genesis 1, when God's Spirit is hovering over the waters. And when the time was right, God closed the windows of heaven and turned off the fountains of the deep. He leaned in and from his own breath gently blew a relieving breeze that sent Noah's massive ark like a child's paper boat across the water in the direction God wanted it to go. Here's something to go back and ponder. On the second day of creation, God separated water from water to create the sky. Then, on the third day, God gathered all the water under the sky into one place and caused dry land to appear. Listen, God did this in two days. Did God really need 370 days to make the floodwaters subside? Of course not, but He had His reasons. He has His reasons now, too, for me and for you. Why he allows this storm or that testing season or any prolonged period of waiting. Sometimes I find myself asking the Lord, why is this taking so long? What is it you're trying to teach me? And he always gently reminds me, it's not what I'm teaching you. 
It's who I'm making you. Okay, one more example from Noah. We see that he kept first things first. In Genesis 8.15, we read that God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife, along with your sons and their wives. Bring out all the living creatures with you, the birds and livestock and everything that crawls upon the ground, so they can all spread out over the earth and be fruitful and multiply in it. So after being confined for a year, the wait was finally over, and it was safe for Noah and his family to leave the ark. Think how eager they would be to unload that ark and begin to build a new life. But where would you even start? When every animal crate was unloaded and every caged bird had been set free, Noah's first act upon leaving the boat was worship. Noah built an altar to the Lord. It had been so long since Noah stood on dry land, even the simple act of bending down and gathering stones came from a heart overflowing with gratitude. It was probably a pretty sacred moment for Noah. Noah took from every kind of clean animal and clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from his youth. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. Noah presented his offering from a heart overflowing with gratitude, not only for what God did for him, but for who God was to him. He was expressing that his life was wholly devoted and given to God. And God's response to Noah becomes this beautiful exchange between them, and it points to the same response that God desires for us. God wants us to experience the pleasure that comes from a grateful heart that is wide open and wholly given to Him. When we teach our kids to say thank you, we often remind them, now, what do you say? Is that how we imagine God wants to do with us? To say, now, remember to kneel down and thank me, because you should. But what a difference when your child throws loving arms around you in an outburst of joy and says thank you. Our Heavenly Father desires this too. Noah's offering was a pleasing aroma to the Lord that reminds us to keep first things first. Because in that smoke rising to heaven, God was looking far ahead to Calvary and what Jesus would accomplish for us on the cross. So through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of lips that give praise to His name. That's Hebrews thirteen fifteen. So our takeaway lessons from Noah barely scratch the surface of what's here to see about God's grace and the gospel in this story. So we'll just close with one sign of God's covenant in the rainbow. God said, This is the sign of the covenant I make between me and you and every living creature for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and when I see it, I will remember my covenant and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Well, that bow God spoke of in the original language is an archer's bow. It's a deadly weapon of war. And it reminds us that in the flood, God rained down His righteous wrath and judgment on sin. And in His covenant of mercy, God promised to withhold the wrath that we deserve. And like a warrior putting away his weapon, God hung His bow in the sky, pointing up, to the heart of heaven as an everlasting reminder that he himself would make a way for peace. 
In Genesis 8 and 9, if you keep track of repeated words, you saw that God's covenant is surrounded by a particular phrase, never again. And that beautiful phrase reminds us of what Jesus uttered on the cross, to tell us die, accomplished. When all of God's wrath against sin and hatred and evil was poured out on God's Son, Jesus said, it is finished. And God said, never again, never again, never again. When Noah was brought safely through that flood, his first act of worship was to build an altar. And what is ours? Ours is Romans 12.1. I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. Every week, our lesson asks, what did you observe from this week's text about God and His character? Well, this week, it would have to be grace. Because as we said at the start, from before the beginning of creation, God was setting the stage for the glorious telling of His grace. Have you ever tried to explain grace in your own words? We can think of a lot of descriptions. God's unmerited favor. Judgment is getting what you deserve, and mercy is not getting what you deserve, and grace is getting what you don't deserve. And then, of course, there's the acronym for grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. And these are all helpful descriptions, but you know, they still seem inadequate. They explain facets of grace, but the more you think of it, the more you see that there's still more to God's grace than that. Take every attribute of God you can think of—kindness, mercy, forgiveness, long-suffering, faithful, wise, true, holy, righteous. Keep going with every facet, and you begin to realize that all of those aspects go into the superlative of grace. Grace is everything that God is, freely given to us, lavishly poured out and spilling over. We say things like, we don't understand now, but when we get to heaven, all our questions will be answered and we'll know the depths of God's grace. (laughs) No, we won't. In the ages to come, He will show us the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's Ephesians 2. Listen, grace will be the never-ending story of eternity. So, when we look all the way back to the ancient Old Testament history and the ancient New Testament history and wonder why God has taken so long to bring all the pieces together and what comes next in the future, let's remember that God is working out His glorious plan of redemption. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And the Lord's not slow in keeping His promises, as some count slowness. Instead, he's patient with us, not wanting that any should perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. So let's live holy and godly lives as we look forward to the day of the Lord.